This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, great to have you with us today. I had an interesting conversation with my kids recently about the obvious evidence for God that is all around us in his creation. Because I was driving them to school and we were looking up above us at a stoplight and saw a V formation of birds that were flying over our heads. And so I turned to the kids and I said, how is it, do you think, that the birds know to fly in a V formation? Now, just as an aside, one scientific source that I read explained why the birds actually fly in a V, and it said they do it to conserve energy by taking advantage of the upwash vortex fields created by the wings of the birds in front. Another reason was to facilitate orientation and communication among the birds. Now, that's no doubt true, but my question is this. How do birds figure that out? Do the geese gather together and discuss how they'll conserve their energy by utilizing upwash vortex fields? Of course they don't. And we as Christians look at this and we say migratory birds fly in a V formation because God put an instinct into them that in essence programs them to do it for very good reasons. And that's exactly what my kids said. They said, Mom, God just created them that way. Well, a lot of people don't think that way and don't understand how easy it is to look at the creation and to conclude there is a creator who divinely designed it. We have overwhelming evidence of our amazing creator God all around us, but non-Christians will often reject it right out of hand. So today we're going to examine the evidence for a divinely created universe the way a cold case detective would do it. And we happen to have one on hand with my next guest, Jay Warner Wallace. He is a cold case homicide detective, also a former atheist, And he is now a popular national speaker and Christian apologist. And we're going to be talking about his book, God's Crime Scene, a cold case detective examines the evidence for a divinely created universe. And Jim, it is wonderful to talk to you again. How are you today? I am so glad to be back with you, Janet. You know, I'm a big fan of yours, so you're glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a joy to have you here. Now, you wrote Cold Case Christianity. A lot of people will be familiar with your previous book, and you looked at evidence for the Gospels. Why take the same detective approach with the origins of the universe? Well, this is my kind of my path. You know, I was somebody who was an atheist until I was 35, and I became interested only because uh, somebody kind of, uh, a pastor kind of challenged me to to consider Jesus just on the simplicity of uh, being a wise, ancient sage. That's it, nothing more. I was not interested in God. But I thought, well, I'm interested in smart people, so if there's an ancient smart guy who's got wisdom, I, I'm happy to read it. And so I started reading the Gospels. And as I read through the Gospels, I became convinced based on my, my kind of uh, expertise as a detective that those were reliable eyewitness accounts up to the extent, up to the point of the miraculous elements in the Gospels. I still would have rejected that aspect of it. But I would have said, okay, this is some form of, 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 of fictional uh, history or of, you know, kind of uh, history with, uh, mixed with, with mythology. But my problem was, of course, is why did I think that anything miraculous was out of bounds? That was because I was, I was a committed philosophical naturalist. And the next thing I had to examine was why do I believe that nothing supernatural, that, that God is, and it could, is not the best explanation for the things I see in the universe. I was a committed naturalist because I believed that uh, you know, physics and the space, time, and matter, and the laws of chemistry, these are the only things that were needed to explain everything I saw in the universe. Hmm. That's why I was a committed naturalist. Of course, the question is, 
are those things sufficient to, 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 to actually explain everything in the universe? So the next thing I had to do was to take a look at the evidence in the universe and see what is the best explanation for that evidence. So God's crime scene is really the, the exact next step I took. Once I realized that I, I, I kind of uh, confirmed what I thought was the reliability of those eyewitness accounts we call the Gospels, I still had the problem of the supernatural elements in the Gospels, and that's when I began this study of the universe. Well, it's a fascinating way that you look at it, and so interesting. I have rarely read apologetics like yours that just grab you because you're approaching it just like a detective would approach it. Now, right at the outset, Jim, you've got this analogy of a crime scene and how evidence of an intruder in the room actually changes the way that you approach a case and investigating a case. How does that apply to evidence for a creator? How would you take that detective model of a crime scene and say, let's figure out the evidence for a creator? Okay, so when we walk into a death scene, you know, lots of people get dispatched, uh, d- detectives, the officers get dispatched to dead body reports. We call these DBRs, dead body reports. People die. And sometimes they'll call us out to take a look and see why somebody had died. And we'll get there, and there's really four ways that any of us can die. You can die naturally. You can die by way of accident. You can die uh, by way of suicide. And you can be murdered. And, of course, if it's the first three, then the homicide investigator is not going to get involved. He, we're only concerned if it's homicide. So the first thing we have to do in the scene is to determine which of the four you know, manners of death is pl- applicable. And one of the easiest ways to do this is to play this little game I call inside or outside the room. We simply ask the question, can I explain everything inside the room by staying inside the room? So if I get there and there's a victim with a uh, bullet wound injury and there's a pistol laying at his side and, and that pistol is registered to him and it's only his fingerprints and DNA on the pistol and there's no sign of an entry and he's the only person in the room and all the evidence in the room comes back to him, well, I can explain everything in the room by staying in the room. It's his, it's basically his, it's a suicide or it's an accidental, but it's not going to be a homicide. Now, if on the other hand, that pistol's not registered to him and or the fingerprints on that pistol are not his or the DNA is not his and there are even bloody footprints leading out of the room. Well, now I've got evidence in the room that I cannot explain by staying in the room. I have to go outside the room for an explanation. Well, when that's the case, I've got to really consider the reasonable inference of an intruder. And that changes everything. That changes this thing from a, a death scene to a crime scene. And this is what intruders do. They, they change the nature of your scene. Now, we could to turn a corner here and apply the same technique to the universe. I tried to identify eight pieces of evidence in the room of the universe, the natural universe, that everyone has to explain regardless of your worldview. The only question is, can I explain these eight pieces by staying inside the room? If I can, then some form of naturalism is sufficient. If I can't, I've got to look for what is the kind of divine or kind of cosmic level intruder that might explain or might best account for these eight pieces of evidence. And that's what we're trying to do in uh, God's crime scene. Well, that makes total sense. You want to establish the evidence that you see around you in the world and say, how in the world could that just be here? For example, you would look at cosmological evidence or biological evidence, moral evidence, these sorts of things. But where would you begin when you're when you're doing those eight pieces of evidence? Which one well, would you this start is with? That's a great point you're making. We have a different forms, right? So, so for example, let's say, uh, Janet, that I'm looking at you as a suspect, and somebody tells me, oh, I saw Janet at the scene. Okay, great. I've got a witness who puts Janet at the scene. But what would an even better approach be if I had your fingerprints there and maybe some physical evidence there that implicated you? Maybe I saw uh, somebody... Uh, 
tells me about your behavior before and after the murder that implicates you, and then you have some, some statements that you made that implicated you. Plus, I have the witness who said he saw you there. Well, now this case is built on a number of different kinds of evidence, all that point to Janet. Now, that's the problem. It's, it's built on several legs. Well, it turns out these eight pieces of evidence are on four very, very different categories of evidence, cosmological evidence, the beginning of the universe, the appearance of fine-tuning in the universe, biological evidence, the origin of life in the universe, the appearance of design and biological structures, mental evidence, the, for your own consciousness, your, be able to, uh, your free agency, and then finally moral evidence, the objective transcendent moral truths we all acknowledge, and uh, the existence of evil. All these things are in the universe and have to be explained by your worldview, regardless of what kind of worldview you hold. So we all have a similar burden of proof to show how our worldview accounts for these eight pieces. And I think that this is one of the things we look at. These are very different categories, very in eight different kinds of evidence. If they all point to the same source, then I think we've got a reasonable inference that that's the correct, uh, correct conclusion. Now, when you're looking at the pieces of evidence, would you also include the biblical text or for purposes of discussion, would you leave that out for the time being? Okay, so I, I took an approach that really kind of comes out of my own uh, personal journey. And so at this point in my personal journey, you would never have been able to reach me with the biblical text. Now, what's so great about it is, of course, at the end of all this, we want to say, okay, if there's a suspect, a description that emerges based on the evidence in the room, well, then, of course, we're going to try to match that to something that's out there in terms of a worldview. If I hired, I've got a great friend named Mark Stafford who worked for the FBI for years. He's a criminal profiler. He's a crime scene profiler. What he would do is I would tell him, hey, I'm not going to tell you who my suspects are. I'm not going to tell you anything about my suspect. I'm just going to show you the crime scene. Given what you know about crime scenes and evidence, I want you to describe for me the kind of person I'm looking for. And he would just look at the evidence at the crime scene and say, okay, you're looking for this. And he would tell me, blah, 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 blah. Wow. Say, okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Hang on, Jim, just a moment. We're going to come back. Jay Warner Wallace talking about his book, God's Crime Scene. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. What did you pray for today? Good health, safety, maybe to meet a goal? Those are good things to pray for. But pastors and evangelists in the Middle East aren't praying for material blessings or for an end to the persecution or difficulties they face. Rather, they're praying for copies of God's Word so that believers will be spiritually nourished and strengthened to live out their faith in this challenging part of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and Latin America live each day without their very own Bible. But you can send one today. Give one Bible for only $5, 20 Bibles for $100, or 200 Bibles for $1,000. Whatever you'd like to give, you can become a Bible sender by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
the healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. It's great to be with you and great to be talking with Jay Warner Wallace. He is the author of God's Crime Scene, a cold case detective examines the evidence for a divinely created universe. So, Jim, before we went to the break, you were talking about your friend in the FBI and this issue of evidence. And I wanted to let you pick you up, pick it up where you left off. Well, yeah, because this is, you know, God's crime scene is different a little bit than the first book I wrote, which is Cold Case Christianity, because in Cold Case, we're looking at, you know, um, really the, the strength of testimony. And what kinds of skill sets do you bring to testimony? And how do you evaluate testimony? Well, of course, there's no eyewitnesses to the beginning of the universe, so we have to take a different approach. And uh, my friend Mark, who works who worked for the FBI for years, he's a crime scene profiler, so he would just basically look at the evidence at the crime scene and then tell me what kind of suspect I ought to be looking for if it happens to be that of the four people I've been looking at, one happens to match this, the description he offered, even though he has no idea who my suspects are, no idea who my candidates are. Well, that's a good way to approach it because he's used a different set of skills and has given me, objectively, a description of somebody I should be looking for that happens to match somebody I'm already looking at. Perfect. Perfect. Well, the same thing happens here. I happen to get a profile of the suspect that could account for all the evidence in the universe, if that profile happens to match this description we have in Scripture of this being called Yahweh, well, that's a great... Now, okay, this is... Interestingly, that's what, if those two things match, I've got good reason to believe I have arrived at the conclusion of Yahweh in a way that's really um, testable and refutable or, or verifiable, and that makes it the conclusion even that much more powerful because I didn't come to it by based on my presuppositions as a Christian. I came to it based on the evidence in the universe that happens to match the description of God that's given in Scripture. And that was very powerful for me as an atheist because you never would have been able to reach me the other way. You would have had to have started with me, at least, with making the case from the crime scene and then letting that point to a suspect. That is so neat how you do that. Now, whoever is in the room, as you say in the book, is, for example, non-material and uncaused. How can you tell that from the evidence? Okay, so one of the first things we look at in any piece of evidence is how did this piece of evidence get in this room? Origination of the evidence is really important to us. You know, was it there all along? Did it belong to the victim? Did she, is she the one who brought it in? Or did the suspect bring it in the room when he came in the room? It's going to help us to know how to evaluate that evidence. Well, it turns out the first thing we have to do with the universe is, is ask the question, how did the universe get here? How did the room come into the room? You know, that's kind of the first <laughs> question we have. Yeah. And the problem we have is it all science. All the science I would have used as an atheist points to a beginning of all space, time, and matter. 
And this is something that is really not up for debate anymore. This is the standard cosmological model is that all space, time, and matter came into existence at a point in the past. Now, of course, the problem with that is that in order for that to happen, in order for this to come into existence, and all science points to this, and I kind of make a list of all the science in the book that points to this conclusion, you have to then have a, a cause that is itself not spatial, temporal, or material, because those are the things that come into existence at that point. So you have to have a cause that's none of those things. And so right away, uh, the very first piece of evidence causes us to have to go outside the natural universe, because nature is basically all space, time, and matter, outside that universe in order to explain the existence of that universe. And in most of the thinking based on my atheist uh, physicists that I surveyed for the book is that some form of a multiverse generator or a quantum environment, you know, everyone's kind of struggling to figure out what this uncaused, eternal, first cause of the universe could be, because they want it to be an impersonal, eternal first cause rather than a personal eternal first cause because you know where that's going to go that points back to us as theists as people who believe in god's existence and so of course we're trying they're trying to find something that's non-personal and the problem is though in order to explain this impersonal first cause is also the cause that has to give you all the other pieces of evidence in the room so if you've got some kind of a multiverse generator it has to not only account for the existence of our universe but how does it explain objective, transcendent, moral truths in our universe? How, how does that ever provide, provide you with the standard of good by which we would call anything evil? Yes. Those things require something personal, not something impersonal. Well, you said something interesting when you're referring to atheists or non-Christians who say, I'm trying to find an impersonal first cause for everything that we see all around us. Aren't you already impeding your investigation because you're limiting the beginning of the universe only to non-personal causes, which is not a good way to, you know, if you went into a crime scene, for example, and saw a dead body and said, well, I'm going to rule out the husband. You know, the wife is dead. I'm going to rule out the husband. It's got to be somebody besides the husband. How can you do an accurate investigation unless all possibilities are on the table? No, you're absolutely right. This is the first chapter of Cold Case when I wrote this book because the same thing happens to me in every scene. Uh, You're absolutely, uh, we always say this, that science tells us nothing. Scientists tell us things. And the scientists tell us these things based on the facts that the science uncover. But then they interpret those facts and often based on their presuppositional worldview. Yes. And they give us an answer. So I'm looking at the same evidence that they're looking at. I'm going to describe the same science that they've described. This book has really got a lot of science and philosophy in it. The only difference is I'm treating each fact more objectively and saying, hey, leave the conclusion open. Don't, don't automatically rush to your natural uh, explanations. Leave it open and see where the evidence points. In the end, I don't believe that those impersonal forces that are typically described that would cause the universe to come into existence can give you the information, for example, we see in DNA. Information typically comes from intelligence. So with that, we've never seen any set of laws, of physical laws, of physics or chemistry that could ever give you the kind of complexity and specificity that we see in DNA. That kind of information always comes from intelligence. So again, that multiverse generator, that impersonal cause we're talking about simply cannot explain that piece of evidence in our universe. Instead, the better inference is an intelligent source. And if that first cause is a personal, all-powerful, non-spatial, non-material, atemporal first cause, well, then that, that would actually, that, that kind of a cause could give you information. Right. And that's what we're seeing, I think, in this. And that's why I build this case on all eight pieces of evidence. Because remember, when you walk into that crime scene, 
that one suspect you're, you're saying is the cause has to account not just for one of the pieces of evidence in your crime scene. That guy has to account for all the evidence in your crime scene. That's right. Well, and you, you raise a great point with the DNA point. But what about also something that will come up in apologetics arguments about the creation of the world and the, the possibility of having a creator? The uh, what is it? The second law of thermodynamics, entropy, where things have a tendency to run down and to become less complex. And here we have atheists and uh, people like Dawkins and so forth saying, oh, no, uh, we, beca- we, we are these complex life forms uh, that came out of perhaps less complex life forms. It, to me, it strains common sense to even try to come up with a theory that would stay consistent that would explain all of it. Well, in the end, we have a chicken and egg problem with all origin of life theories. You know, life is basically built on the simple building blocks of proteins that can, are formed from amino acids. And the problem you have is that protein formation requires ribosome machines and other kinds of molecular machines that are themselves built of proteins. So that you have a chicken and egg problem. Well, how does all this stuff come together in such a way as to create itself? I mean, what overcomes the chicken and egg problem in most biological systems is DNA, genetic information, which instructs all of this complex uh, formation of both the ribosome machines, all the molecular machines in the the, the, uh, cell, all those things are guided by DNA. So in the end, we used to think, gosh, the entire universe is grounded on physics. It turns out it's grounded in information, Hmm. and that's the hardest thing to explain is how do we get information in the genome that will overcome the chicken and egg problem of all biological life. What do they tend to say when confronted with that argument? Well, I can tell you this. I surveyed all the uh, uh, kind of the big questions that detectives ask, and if you can employ these with the origin of life, the how, what, when, where questions we always ask, right? right. Well, you'll see that the scientists are absolutely conflicted and divided on all the answers to those big questions related to the origin of life. We are no closer today than we were the very first day any scientist ever began a study on the origin of life. We can't agree on where it could occur. We can't agree on how it occurred. We can't agree on when it occurs. There's no science that's established any of that. That's the problem. No one's got answers for those questions because they are insurmountable based on the problem of DNA and information. This is why Anthony Flew, the famous atheist who for years held out as an atheist, ultimately changed his view about theism because he was convinced you can't explain DNA. That is fascinating. So how would you go about identifying design in the universe, looking at a divinely created universe and the order and the structure? What sorts of things do you think really demonstrate that there is a creator who has designed it? Well, this has been something that people have kind of struggled with. I think even in the literature we see from, from theists and, and atheists alike is, you know, what, is the, what are the signs? What are the attributes of design? And everyone's got kind of a different spin on this. So I, I looked at all of it, and my experience as a detective tells me that the best cases are what I call cumulative cases, right? The, 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 the idea is if I can build a case against somebody on 80 pieces of evidence, that's a much better case than especially the more diverse the evidence. I think there are, are really eight different attributes of design that we typically associate with designers. Hard to avoid. There are things like irreducible complexity. There are things like informationally uh, based uh, design. There are things like goal direction, um, complexity, uh, the, the insufficiency of natural uh, uh, laws in getting it done, the, the, the impossibility of, of chance involved in some of these. So I list eight things that we typically recognize as attributes of design in one of my chapters, chapter four. And I show how we apply that eight 
Kong template to anything that you've ever picked up. If it's a phone, if it's something on the floor that you pick up and you wonder, did, did nature create this or was this intelligently designed? This template will help you decide. Well, it turns out when you take that eight-piece template and you apply it to biological structures, you're going to find that those biological structures demonstrate the attributes of design that in any other structure we would say that's clearly designed by an intelligent designer. Wow. Why do we reject the intelligent designer when it comes to biological structures? When in that same template, when applied to anything else in our world, we would conclude that there's an intelligent designer. I, I, for example, I apply it to a bird's nest. If you apply this template to a bird's nest, you're going to see clearly, okay, now I see how the template works. That's clearly a design. No, the wind didn't that nest together. <laughs> Gravity didn't draw that nest together. An intelligent bird built that nest. I love it. Well, hang on just a moment. We're going to come back. Jay Warner Wallace with me talking about God's crime scene. And we'll return right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. So how do we know that the universe was divinely created? We are entering the world of apologetics today. A great book is out, God's Crime Scene. A cold case detective examines the evidence for a divinely created universe. You're listening to the Janet Mefford today, and Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. So you were talking about this template applied to the biological aspect of life. And a bird nest, it's kind of like what I I was saying at the beginning of the show about a, a V formation. How do the birds know how to do something like that? If you really take the time to inspect and to look and to examine... You will be amazed, even, you know, even if you're not a Christian yet, and hopefully those who are listening who are not Christians will be convinced and uh, the Lord will save them down the road. But how can you look at something like a bird's nest and conclude, wow, that just kind of came, came about, no big deal? Exactly. What we do is we apply a template, this eight-piece template that's built basically, first of all, that it's got, it's, there's no way that, that natural laws uh, could account for this, that there's no way that, st- that, uh, that chance is a sufficient explanation. If we see something that we recognize immediately as resembling other known designed objects, that's one aspect of it. Any kind of sophistication and intricacy that seems to be unexplainable by natural law, that's another part of it. If it's informationally dependent, you know, this is why we say information in the genome is so important to our equation. If we think it's got goal direction or some form of obvious intentionality, that's important. And also, if there's an irreducible complexity, uh, and, and that's something we talk about occasionally, that's where you have uh, an object that has to have a, a, a distinct number of pieces assembled in a certain way. It cannot be reduced below that, um, that limited number of pieces that in order to function. When you see that, that's a clear earmark of design. And finally, is there some decision or choice reflection we can see where other alternatives were available, but this appears to be a choice that's made about what to use in the construction of this? Okay, now that's a lot to say. That's a big sentence. But when you actually I, – I have several illustrations in the book where I show that you don't have to have all eight of these things in 
place to infer a designer. As a matter of fact, in the bird's nest, you're only going to have five or six of these things really in place. But even with just five or six things in place, you recognize that bird's nest is not an accident. Mm. That bird's nest is the product of intelligent design of birds. So when I show how one of the um, a weapon that was left at a crime scene, by the way, I try to do this in this book, Janet, is every single chapter... If I'm going to introduce a complex uh, a concept or a concept we're going to use to, to infer what's inside or outside the room of the universe, I begin with a crime scene from my professional career that where I had to use that same skill set to make a conclusion. Right. And then we turn a corner and show how that same skill set. So every one of these chapters basically begins with a, a cop story. And then mm-hmm. we move from the cop story into the universe and we talk about how we would apply that technique to this piece of evidence. And so in this particular issue of design, I show how we used this to determine that a weapon left at a crime scene was in fact a weapon that was built and designed and created by the killer. It was a garrote, which is basically a wire strangulation device, right? So he left this at the crime scene. Well, why do we believe that that piece of wire is not just some artifact of the scene? Hmm. Why do we look at that piece of wire with the two handles at the ends and we go immediately, we know, wait a minute, that's a designed object. That's, That's something that shows attributes of design. Well, that's, again, because even unconsciously, we apply a template of design to it. Now, why does this all matter? Because when you look at biological structures in, in your own physical anatomy, even at the cellular level, when you look at the icon of all intelligent design, which is Michael Behe's example, he's a professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University. He's the first one who mentioned, who said, hey, this bacterial flagellum, this little motor that drives bacteria at the cellular level, my gosh, it appears to be like a rotary engine we see in, in cars. Hmm. How in the world could this thing have evolved? What mechanism of evolution could ever account for the kinds of machines we see at the molecular level? Well, yeah, he's right. Because the eight pieces, eight attributes of design that I describe in the book are, are present in that molecular machine. And when we see that, the most reasonable inference is design, not evolution. Absolutely. So let's move on to some of the qualities of human beings, because this is a huge area. When yeah. we talk about human beings having consciousness, I know some of the things I've read from some of the new atheists and so forth, struggle a little bit to fully explain consciousness. How yeah. do we do a crime scene on this and find evidence for a creator just by merely looking at the consciousness of human beings? Yeah, that is a problem, and it's called the problem of mind or mind-body problem. And as you see a lot of literature on this, you can read a number of books that in their title have the problem of mind. Well, why is it a problem? It's a problem because it's almost impossible to explain from an atheistic, physicalistic, materialistic definition of the universe. You can explain in a materialistic universe how brains exist, but you cannot explain how the non-material mind could emerge from a purely physical universe. That's the problem. Is the mind simply an illusion? Do we think we have an unconscious self-awareness, but really these are just uh, physical um, activities in our brain that give us the illusion of consciousness? A lot of atheists believe that's all this could be because they know if atheism is true, the only thing they have to work with is the stuff that might give you a brain, but that same stuff's not going to give you a mind. Well, what I tried to do in the chapter on this in the book is to show you 
you five differences between the brain and the mind. To think that a mind is the same as the brain is a mistake. And not everyone, I mean, most people recognize that's why this is called the problem of mind. And so I'll, I'll show in the book, give you five quick ways to distinguish between these two, but that leaves the problem unanswered. How do we get minds in a purely physical universe? And a lot of atheists have really kind of bitten the bullet on this and just said, you know, our worldview does not get you to mind. Therefore, we don't recognize mind. It's wow. an illusion. Wow. And a lot of least consistent atheists who are physical determinists or people who believe all we have in the universe is space, time, and matter and the laws that govern those things. Well, guess what? Physics cannot govern your mental thoughts. No. That's the problem. Physics could govern the neurons that are firing in your physical brain. So you know the, the, the stuff of atheism is, is available for the brain, but the stuff of atheism has no uh, relationship to the mind. Well, and if that your mind is, is the problem. Yeah, if your mind is an illusion, why should I listen to you anyway? Well, not only that, if you think your mind is an illusion, with what are you determining that this is an illusion? Are you using your mind to determine that? <laughs> right. Here's the problem. Right. Even to have an illusion requires a, a conscious mind to be you know, deceived, to, oh. be, to, be, uh, to have an illusion. That's so it. this is the problem, is that there's almost no way around our, our common experience of mind. Now imagine if there is a personal, non-spatial, non-material, non-atemporal, creative, intelligent mind that is creating in its own image, well, that thing outside the room of the universe could actually account for the beings that we see in the universe that have information, they're informationally loaded with DNA, and they are conscious minds because they've been created in the image of their creator. This is, the, this is why I think that the external suspect starts to look more and more and more, step by step, looks more and more like what we see in Scripture, that there is a, a, a conscious mind. We talk also free agency, right? If you have a mind, do you have the ability to make choices with your mind, free choices? Because if all you have is a brain with neurons firing, those are you have a physical brain that is basically dependent on prior physical events like dominoes falling one against the other. Well, guess what? You don't have free, free agency then. Everything has been determined by a prior set of physical events that are inclining you towards some behavior based on the way the dominoes are falling. And again, atheists are also consistent. If they're consistent atheists, they also will tell you that you don't have the freedom you think you have. That's also an illusion. Hmm. So you have a more deterministic universe that is purely physical, nothing but dominoes. And remember, dominoes can't make free choices. Dominoes simply fall when they've been falling against. And that's the problem with this kind of a universe. It turns out if you want to be able to reason to decide between two competing ideas, to decide if what you're hearing from me today is even reasonable. You have to live in a, in a theistic universe that allows you the consciousness and freedom to make kinds of choices that we would call reasonable. Yes. And that's the problem. That's Atheism the problem. can't give you that kind of universe. No, and can't explain love. For me, that's a very large argument as well when you talk about free choice and moral judgments and so forth. How do you explain love if we're just merely materialistic matter? Yes, everything that we I valued as an atheist, reason, creativity, compassion and empathy and love, but more importantly, how about culpability? Mm. As a cop, that's a big issue. If you aren't making free choices that I can hold you accountable, I can't hold you accountable for your eye color. Boy. That's just a consequence of your genetic code and, and physical nature. I'll tell you what, hang on. We'll be back with God's Crime Scene, Jay Warner Wallace on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford here to tell you about the ministry of Preborn. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. You just heard a real life testimony from a woman whose life was changed by the ministry of Preborn. You see, when a young woman considering abortion sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she almost always chooses life for her preborn baby. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. Preborn steps into the darkest corners and finds women in need to help them choose life. The mission of Preborn is to glorify Jesus Christ by equipping pregnancy centers nationwide to help save lives and impact moms and babies for the kingdom of God. Preborn leads the country in placing ultrasound machines and counseling women while also helping to lead them to saving faith in Jesus. In 2020 alone, over 31,000 babies were saved and over 7,000 women came to know the Lord. I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. <laughs> I was certain I was going to keep my baby forever. Would you join with us at Janet Mefford today to help preborn help women choose life for 350 babies by the end of January? All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes toward life. One ultrasound session costs $28. A gift of $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. But any gift of any size will help. or maybe you could even help buy an ultrasound machine for $15,000. But whatever you can give will help. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. Again, call toll-free, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Great to have you here. God's Crime Scene, a cold case detective examines the evidence for a divinely created universe. The book from J. Warner Wallace. By the way, you can check him out at coldcasechristianity.com. And we have had a fascinating discussion so far about all the evidence that is available for us to examine, just like a detective would, when we are trying to determine the origins and the meaning of the universe. And one of the things that you bring up in the book, too, Jim, is this question of morality. We were talking a little bit about free choices, love, reason, and culture culpability and so forth. But morality, we're often told, is just opinion. And yet you will find globally some system of law and order and and people believing one thing is good, one thing is evil, even if it's reversed. If you have ISIS saying slaughtering Christians is good, they have their own twisted moral code. But there is a sense of good and evil universally. How do we look at that evidence and conclude there's a creator behind it? Yeah, great, great point, because I think there's a moral kind of hierarchy we see. I worked with a lot of gang cultures for two years working in gangs in Los, in Los Angeles County, and I can tell you that every group had its own moral code. There were things they would have said you do and you don't do. Now, we might have looked at those, those behaviors and said, well, no, we don't, we don't agree with those as a culture. And it turns out as you step up the moral hierarchy, you know, if you're a gangster in Los Angeles County, you have to bend your knee to the code of your gang. But if you're a gang member in Los Angeles County, you can't park your car in certain places on the street because you 
got to bend your knee to the Los Angeles County codes. And if you're in Los Angeles County, you got to bend your knee to the California state laws. And if you're in California, you got to bend your knee to the federal laws. And if you're in the United States, you know, the, the United Nations thinks it kind of governs all of us, or at least should have some say in what we're doing, right? I mean, this is the point. As we go up, each one of these levels provides us with certain laws. If everything you believe morally can fit in one of those levels, then fine. All of morals are just a matter of either cultural or, or national or whatever opinion you might, might, may, may think of. But here's the problem. There are a number of laws that we agree transcend every culture. For example, it is never okay to kill someone for the fun of it. Right. That is a code that transcends every culture in every point in history, no matter where you are on the map. That tra- As a matter of fact, if you can imagine a Star Trek world in which there's a confederation of planets, then that code even applies to the Klingons, okay? <laughs> it's a, it transcends the species we call humans. Well, where do we get transcendent, objective, moral codes that, that, are, that really are not grounded in the gang group, or not grounded in the city or the state or the federal law? They're grounded in something that transcends even the species. Where, such a, where could such a code come from? Well, that's the problem, is that you cannot get it by way of either cultural opinion. You cannot get it by way of DNA. If you think that your, your, your ideas about morals are embedded in your DNA, well, good luck trying to tell somebody else with a different genetic background that they're wrong about something because yeah. then they're going to say, hey, I can't hold me accountable for this. My genetic code inclines me to believe this is actually moral behavior. You know? yeah, so yeah. You're not going to be able to make any kinds of moral uh, choices. So the problem is we've got to account for transcendent, objective moral codes that we all recognize transcend all of us. And the best way to ground those is in a source that also transcends all of us. Now, what about the problem of evil? I know we don't have a whole lot of time to delve into that in great depth, but the problem of evil for many non-Christians, they will say there can't be a God because if God is good and God is holy, why doesn't he stop evil? We know the answer is the cross. But how do you deal with that using the limitations that you have here examining a crime scene, for example? Well, I can tell you that you know, there's inculpating evidence and there's exculpating evidence. Inculpating evidence points you toward a suspect. Exculpating if like an alibi will actually take that suspect off the table. Is evil an exculpating piece of evidence that takes God off the table? I don't think so. Because number one, why do we say something is evil? Do we mean it's just evil to us? Or do we mean it's, no, it's truly evil. I mean, it's transcendently evil. It's, it's evil no matter who you are, no matter where you are in history or where you are in the universe. If that's the case, we need a standard of what we would call good by which to measure something that is truly transcendently evil. The only measurement of what could be that's transcendently good like that is, of course, a source that transcends all the universe. And that's the problem. Once again, you're outside the natural room. You're outside looking at a source that could, trans- that could actually... Now, but that doesn't answer the question, though, Jenna. Why does evil happen? We're not going to be able to answer that today on the radio, of course. But I can tell you in the book, what I try to do is show you the complexity of any evil act I've ever investigated. And I've investigated my share, believe me. They are always complicated. And the, the reasons they explain why an act occurs are always layered and, and multifaceted, and they're nuanced. Well, it turns out, I think there are seven things, and I talk about this in the chapter, 
that explain evil in the context of a universe in which there is an all-loving, all-powerful God who has dominion, why would these things happen? Well, I think there are seven reasons. And it's always going to be some combination that's nuanced and complicated and interrelated. And to think, you can say to me, Jim, why did that happen to that little girl? I can just give you a 140-character response on Twitter. (laughs) Forget it. It's never going to happen. It's a complicated, interrelated connection. And that's what we try to talk about in that chapter on evil. That's it. So in the last few minutes we have, I know that you make a great closing argument. You also have a secondary investigation that you include in the book. But how do you formulate your closing argument to the jury on the evidence for a divinely created universe? Well, in the end, if we know that all the explanation can be completely uh, uh, explained by one common causal factor, that's a powerful case. It turns out in order to explain all the evidence in the universe from the atheistic perspective, I have to employ dozens and dozens and dozens of unrelated and contradictory, uh, not even evidentially based explanations, hoping that one of them sticks to the wall. So we can kind of say, well, look, it's just a, a, a crazy combination of all these causes that give us a universe that looks a certain way. Or we could say there's one common causal explanation that could explain all the evidence. Which is more reasonable? It's always going to be the simpler explanation that's more reasonable. It turns out there is a theory of everything that scientists have been looking for. That theory of everything is called Yahweh. It's called God. Because that one explanation could account for all the evidence in the universe if you would stop pushing against the the final question nobody wants to ask is not a what, when, how how or what, where. It's a who. The who question could actually resolve the other unanswered questions if we'll just allow ourselves to ask the who question. But that gets us away from naturalism and points back to the God of the universe. That's for sure. And again, what keeps people from wanting to go on this investigation in the first place is our fallen nature. I, th- th- and this is a problem because for a lot of us, we'll say, you're, but you're smart. You're, you'll turn to your non-Christian friend who's brilliant and say, but you're so smart. How can you not see this? It's not just a matter of examining the evidence, but certainly once you start examining the evidence, the Lord uses that. He used it in your life. Yeah, you know, and in the end, nobody likes the intruder, and we're describing the divine intruder who actually is not really intruding. It's his universe. That's we're it. the intruders. Yes. But I think most people want to resist the intruder. That's it. Now, you talk also about a sense of urgency about the evidence for God's crime scene. What would you say, for example, to the non-Christians who've heard what you've had to say today? Well, lots of times as an atheist, I would have said, hey, I'm not going to rush to God as an answer because someday science might have an answer for me. But I want you to think about this. We don't allow jurors to say to themselves when considering a case in a jury trial, hey, you can't make a decision because maybe five years from now, some new piece of evidence will come up that will change things. Really? You have to make a decision based on whether this is good enough today. You can't wait and hoping that five years from now, something new will come up. So in the end, I think there's more than enough evidence to, to, to infer the existence of God and, and, and God's crime scene, which is what the book I've written here. Now, the question is, are you going to really kind of say, no, I don't want that to be true, so I'm going to wait, hoping that someday that some new piece of evidence will explain all the unanswered questions in atheism? Okay, it, I think in the end, we have to have a sense of urgency. Act now, because so much is at stake. The idea you're going to be able to wait and hope that someday these questions will get answered, that's called the kind of, we, we would never be allowed to do that as Christians. Someday God will answer it. No, we want to move now. That's called science of the gaps. If you say, well, gosh, someday science will be able to answer it. 
science has been working on these questions for generations. There are no answers, and I'm absolutely convinced that going forward there won't be, because the best inference is the inference we see today, that God is the creator of the universe. Absolutely. And for those uh, materialists or naturalists who would say, well, I know we don't really have sound answers on these massive questions, but, well, I just live with that tension. Well, if you live with that tension and you never take the time to examine the evidence for a creator, you're playing really Russian roulette with your soul. That's the bottom line. There's a lot at stake in criminal trials. When you've got somebody as a murder suspect, there's a lot at stake. Well, there's even more at stake if it's your eternal life that hangs in the balance. You know, no one's guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day to act, to make a decision based on what we do know today. Because you may not have a tomorrow for science to fill in the, in the, the gap. We make a decision today. That's why I always say that the death scenes, when they determine there's an intruder, those turn into crime scenes. And it also should turn your sense of curiosity into a sense of urgency, because we've got to go out and catch the bad guy. So if you're listening and you're listening to the evidence that is being collected, you should have a sense of urgency about making a decision because we don't have tomorrow guaranteed. Oh, beautifully said. A wonderful book. And I say that wholeheartedly. It's called God's Crime Scene. A cold case detective examines the evidence for a divinely created universe. Jay Warner Wallace. You can find him at coldcasechristianity.com. Jim, always a pleasure. It's so great to have you here and a wonderful book. Good job. I'm indebted to you as always, Janet. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jim. God bless you. And thanks a lot for being with us. And thank you to our website, JanetMefford.com. Thanks for being with us. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.